You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we continue our series of sermons on the Canons of Dort. And today we come to Articles 8 and 9 of Chapter 2. Article 8 is entitled, The Efficacy of the Death of Christ. But this was the most free counsel of God the Father, that the life-giving and saving efficacy of the most precious death of His Son should extend to all the elect. It was His most gracious will and intent to give them alone justifying faith, and thereby to bring them unfailingly to salvation. This means, God willed that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and tongue, all those, and those only, who from eternity were chosen to salvation and were given to him by the Father. God further willed that Christ should give to them faith, which together with other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all sins, both original and actual, both those committed after faith and before faith, and that he should guard them faithfully to the end, and at last present them to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle. Article 9, The Fulfillment of God's Counsel. This counsel, proceeding from eternal love for the elect, has from the beginning of the world to the present time been powerfully fulfilled, and will also continue to be fulfilled, though the gates of hell vainly try to frustrate it. In due time, the elect will be gathered together into one, and there will always be a church of believers, founded on the blood of Christ. This church shall steadfastly love and faithfully serve him as her Savior, who, as bridegroom for his bride, laid down his life for her on the cross, and celebrate his praises here and through all eternity. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, this afternoon let's begin by using our imaginations for a moment. Imagine for a moment that terrorists are threatening to release a deadly virus into a large American city. Now, perhaps for some of you, this will be easier to imagine than for others. But anyway, imagine further that there's a dedicated team of agents working to defeat this threat. They're working 24 hours a day trying to find out who's behind this plot so they can stop it. And in the course of events, the terrorists threaten to release the virus immediately unless the head of this team of agents is executed. The team tries a number of strategies, but as the deadline approaches, they're left with no other choice but to give in to the demand of the terrorists. One of the agents is forced to kill his boss. And in due time, the terrorist plot is dismantled, and once again, the American public is safe. Now, under normal circumstances, killing your boss is not a good idea. But... At the end of the fictional scenario I just described, the situation would have to be evaluated 
in a way that accounts for the stress of the crisis. The intent and the purpose of the killing would have to come into play. Did the agent do this because he was vindictive and angry? Or was there a higher purpose? Why did this man die? And did it actually or only potentially accomplish something? And in this fictional case, which we imagined, the death of one man eventually accomplished the deliverance of millions. And so the agents involved might be vindicated for taking the course of action that they did. They were left with no other choice. The intent and purpose of the death was to save others. And in the nature of the case, it did that. Of course, you realize, as well as I do, that such fictional scenarios are rare in the real world. But as we turn to the canons of Dort this afternoon again, we're faced with a similar scenario, but this time from real life. A violent death. One man dies. And questions are raised afterwards, long afterwards. Why did this man die? What was the design or the intent of his death? Those are the questions answered in chapter 2 of the canons as we consider the doctrine of grace that we call limited atonement, or as we can better call it, particular redemption. And so this afternoon I preach God's word as it's confessed by the church and the canons of Dort with this theme, our sovereign God graciously gives the elect salvation in the death of Christ. And we'll look at, first of all, Christ's redemption accomplished and applied, and then second of all, God's counsel fulfilled. Let's take a look there at Article 8 again. Have a look at the first sentence. For this was the most free counsel of God the Father that the life-giving and saving efficacy of the most precious death of His Son should extend to all the elect. You know, there's nothing really controversial in that statement. The Arminians, I suppose, would probably have been able to go along with this. After all, they also believed that Christ died for the elect. Of course, you have to remember that they redefine election, right? The Arminian idea of election is that God chooses people, but that he does this on the basis of looking into the future and then seeing who's going to believe, who's going to make their choice for Jesus. So, from the Arminian perspective, there's no problem up to now. But as we come to the second sentence in Article 8, there, there would definitely have been a problem. We read there that it was his most gracious will and intent to give to them alone justifying faith and thereby to bring them unfailingly to salvation. Notice the word alone in that sentence. That's where the Arminians would have stumbled. And then the third sentence explains it further, telling us that God willed that Christ would effectually redeem all those and those only who from eternity were chosen to salvation and were given to him by the Father. And again, notice those words, those only, alone and those only. Those words are indicating to us that Christ's death redeemed a particular group and that particular group alone, excluding all others. With the doctrine of grace that we call particular redemption, we confess that Christ died for the elect and for them alone. This is so simple, 
It's so simple that even our children can understand this. Go home later and you ask them, for whom did Christ die? And they can answer, very simple, only for God's chosen people. It's not hard. Not a difficult concept to understand, but it may be difficult to accept. Christ died for the elect only. And furthermore, he didn't die merely to make salvation possible, as if he opened the door and then you have to go through it. As if he died and then holds out the possibility that he died for us personally, if only we take the step of accepting him in faith. No, we confess that Christ died to make salvation an actual reality. He died for the elect so that the elect would unfailingly be brought to salvation. He accomplishes salvation and then he also applies it. And that means also that he gives all the gifts that are necessary to receive that salvation. He gives the Holy Spirit. He gives faith and so on. So the actual statement of this teaching is very simple. But the bigger question is, is it biblical? Let's have a look at a few passages. We can start with what we read from John 10. The Lord uses the image there of a, a sheep and, it, and the shepherd. And clearly the Lord Jesus is the one who's the shepherd. But who are the sheep? Well, they're those whom the Father has given to him. That's what it says there in, in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We could say that the sheep are God's chosen ones, the elect. Now listen to what the Lord Jesus says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it again in verse 15. He lays down his life for the sheep. He actively gives himself to death and suffering so that the sheep are saved. The sheep are already sheep. They didn't choose to become sheep. God has made them sheep. Verse 28 also affirms particular redemption when it says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Christ doesn't make eternal life possible for them. He gives it to them. Now we've heard this illustration of the sheep and the, and the shepherd before, also in connection with other passages like, like Psalm 23. And perhaps our familiarity with it makes us lose sight of an important truth. Perhaps it's also relevant that, that many of us are unfamiliar with sheep in real life. Perhaps some of us have, have had some experience with sheep, but I don't know. Anyway, brothers and sisters, sheep are really dumb animals. And when God calls us sheep, that's not meant as a compliment. It says something about people. And recently there was a news item from Turkey. Perhaps you saw it. Apparently some Turkish shepherds decided to eat their breakfast. And they were having a good time eating their breakfast and, and, and talking, but whatever Turkish shepherds talk about. And then and one of them looked over his shoulder and saw that the flock of sheep was slowly disappearing off in the distance. One sheep 
had gone over a cliff. And before long, 15 others had followed. In the end, 450 sheep had died. Many of them survived, of course, because there's a big pile of fluffy carcasses starting to build up. But all of them, every single last one of them, went over the cliff. The story illustrates that sheep are dumb. Sheep simply do not make good choices for themselves. Sheep need a shepherd who watches them 24-7. And when Christ says that he is the shepherd, the good shepherd, that's a great illustration of sovereign grace. It's humbling to be reminded that God compares us to a bunch of dumb animals. We need God and we need Christ to save us. Left to ourselves, we would be eternally lost, heading over the cliff to our own eternal deaths with no fluffy carcasses at the bottom. We need someone to lay hold of us and unfailingly bring us to salvation. And that brings us to think of passages which clearly tell us that Christ came into this world not to make salvation a possibility, but a reality. For instance, Matthew 1.21 The angel is speaking to Joseph, and he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. Or Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or Galatians 1.3-4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The salvation which Christ accomplished is real, not merely potential. Now, I could mention many other passages too, but but you can have a look for yourself. There are the proof texts that are mentioned in the the canons themselves, but you can also find a number of passages mentioned in any number of books. And and one of those books I've I've mentioned on the, the liturgy sheet, you can get that book and... See for yourself. What I'd like to do now is just look at a couple of passages that seem to contradict this doctrine of grace that we call particular redemption. For instance, John 4.42. The Samaritans say there that the Lord Jesus really is the Savior of the world. Now, one of the most important principles for biblical interpretation is that we read a text in its context. Context is always crucial to help us to understand a Bible passage. Part of considering the context is looking at how words are used in other passages. And the word world is what we need to look at in John 4.42. Jesus really is the Savior of the world. And in the New Testament, that concept of world, it's expressed with a number of different words, but the the, the concept is often used to express a large group of people from diverse backgrounds. But not necessarily the entire physical world as we understand it. Not necessarily every living human being head for head. Think of Luke 2, verse 1. The NIV interprets this passage somewhat for us. 
But literally, from the Greek, it reads something like, It happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. All the world. That doesn't actually mean the whole world. But it means the entire Roman world, as the the NIV points out. So when we come back to John 4.42, we need to consider, again, the context. What was the situation there? Where was the Lord Jesus at that very moment when those words were spoken? Well, he was in Samaria. And his work there led to the conclusion that he was the Savior, not only of Jews, but also of Samaritans. Really, this was the Messiah for the whole world. Jesus Christ saves people from all peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. And understood in this way, in its context, John 4.42 does not contradict particular redemption. Another passage is 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Some people have also argued that that passage contradicts particular redemption. This passage talks about Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. A testimony given in its proper time. All men. Again, the key principle to keep in mind is context. First of all, what was Paul just writing about in 1 Timothy? He said that Timothy should ensure that prayers should be made to God for everyone, especially for those in positions of authority. He was just speaking about certain kinds of people. So when we read the word all in verse 6, all men, wouldn't it make sense to understand it as saying Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all kinds of different people? Not just for the poor. Not just for the middle class, not just for men, not just for women, but for everybody. And that includes kings and those in authority. And by the way, that's, that's a, a good reminder to remember to pray for our rulers. Especially to, to pray for their conversion when it's apparent that they're not Christians. At any rate, the only way you can use 1 Timothy 2 to undermine the teaching of the canons of Dort in chapter 2 The only way you can do that is to ignore the context and abuse the text. This doctrine of grace is not some mere abstraction where you can go home and and say, well, wasn't that nice? Brothers and sisters, this teaching impacts our lives concretely in a number of ways. I'm just going to mention one of those ways here this afternoon. Consider for a moment what God gives to his people. He graciously gives everything needed for salvation. Canons of Dort speak about the saving gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're given all those things. Everything needed. So God provides the Savior, but he also provides the means we need to embrace the Savior. From first to last, salvation is entirely of grace. We are his chosen people upon whom he's set his love. We've been blessed beyond belief with riches and treasures we we never for a moment deserved. Now think about that parable told by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 18. I think you know the one I'm talking about. The one about the unmerciful servant. 
Having been shown much grace and mercy by his master, he refused to show just a little teeny wee little bit of grace to his fellow worker. Now think about what that parable says to us today as we're looking at the doctrines of grace. For instance, we could just start here at home, in our church. How do we think about God's people here in our congregation? How do we treat them? Are we gracious and charitable? Do we always try to think the best of other people in the church? And as we think about this, it's good to be reminded to be only looking into our own hearts and our own lives. You know, humility demands that we stay away from that proud, self-righteous attitude which thinks, well, I sure hope so-and-so is here in church this afternoon and listening to this because he or she really needs it. Brothers and sisters, if you're thinking about anybody else at this moment, you're being prideful. And pride is sin. Christ died for God's people. You're one of God's people. You've been shown grace. And your calling is to be an instrument of grace in the lives of others. Starting here in our church. And then also going outwards into our communities. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. You're called to be an instrument of grace. Giving others what they don't deserve. Your love and your kindness shown in your thoughts, in your words, and in your actions. Let them know us by our grace, as we know our God by His grace. Let's now turn to Article 9 of Chapter 2 and consider God's counsel fulfilled. Chapter 2 ends on this powerful positive note. Nothing can stop God's sovereign plan from, for His people from being fulfilled. Nothing. Notice the positive thrust here. It's important to note that because it seems that a lot of times we have a negative way of looking at what's happening around us. For instance, the other day I was at an evening where there was a, a Reformed seminary professor speaking and he essentially said that Antichrist was here. Antichrist had come in the form of false teachers and other reformed churches. And he said, it won't be long before we will be forced to flee to the mountains. And God's people will be persecuted in the most awful and terrible ways imaginable. Now, Article 9 of Chapter 2 doesn't speak with a lot of detail to the future. But it does give us an essentially positive perspective on what God will do in the days ahead. And it begins with what God has done in the past. God's counsel, which means His plans for the elect, have been powerfully fulfilled in the past. Satan has tried numerous ways to defeat God's work. But he fails continually. Today, there are more Christians in the world than ever before in history. Through the preaching of the gospel in established churches and in mission posts everywhere, God has been gathering in His elect, applying the accomplished work of Christ to their lives. God has done this in the past, and He continues to do so today. 
When I was a missionary in Fort Babine, the people there were often impressed by Pentecostal preachers who claimed to do miracles. And so, inevitably, I would also get asked the question whether I believed in miracles. My answer would always be, oh yeah, I've seen hundreds of miracles in Reformed churches. Every single person who believes the gospel message is a miracle. I'm a walking and living miracle. God taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. That's a miracle. Amazing. Now in chapter 3-4 of the canons, we confess that this miracle is not inferior in power to creation or to the raising of the dead. It's a miracle. A supernatural working of God. God fulfilling His counsel through the preaching of the Word and the power of His Spirit. It is the most awe-inspiring miracle in the world, which we ought never to take for granted. God does it today. And His Word assures us that He'll continue to do so in the future. The Synod of Dort paraphrased Matthew 16, 18 in Article 9. In that passage, the Lord Jesus clearly says that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. Satan will try. And perhaps this may mean persecution for us at some point. Only God knows. But ultimately, our perspective on the future is positive. Because Christ has the victory. And His church shares in that already in a large measure. Brothers and sisters, we are not on the losing end. And this means that there will always be a church of believers. And when the canons make that statement, they're simply repeating what we already confess in Article 27 of the Belgic Confession. Let's open up our books of praise and have a look at that for a second. Article 27, page 462, the book of praise. Here we confess, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by his blood and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Thus, during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord kept for himself 7,000 persons who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Moreover, this holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. However, it is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. Now, especially I would draw your attention to that second paragraph, the first sentence there. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal king who cannot be without subjects. Now, that is an incredibly pregnant phrase. And 
Unfortunately, I don't have the time here this afternoon to draw out everything from that one phrase. I just want you to note the way the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort develop this argument. This is a a formal argument in in the formal sense of the word. Listen carefully. The first premise of the argument is that a king, by definition, has subjects. Okay? Then the second premise is Luke 1, 33, Psalm 89, 36, and other passages say very clearly that Christ is an eternal king. So you have those two premises, and then the conclusion, Christ will always have subjects on earth. I'll repeat that. First premise, a king by definition has subjects. Second of all, Scripture says that Christ is an eternal king. Conclusion, Christ will always have subjects here on earth. There will always be a church of Jesus Christ on earth. And that, by the way, is the reason why this idea of a rapture, which was popularized by the Left Behind series of books, that idea is impossible. That's getting into other matters, and I said I wouldn't do that. The important thing here is that there is a fundamentally positive way of looking at the future. And it's all because of God's grace and the death of Christ. Christ really died for some people. And he will faithfully carry through with each one of them, present and future. There's a wedding feast, a victory party to look forward to. Now, I'd leave you hanging if I said amen at this point. Because this fact of a fundamentally positive outlook to the future, that does affect the way we live today. The canons lay that out with the last sentence of Article 9. This church shall steadfastly love and faithfully serve him as her Savior, who as bridegroom for his bride, lay down his life for her on the cross, and celebrate his praises here and through all eternity. Well, here there's a call to worship. There's also a call in general to love and serve the Lord who graciously gave himself for us. That's pretty general. So we could ask the question, what does that look like? Well, there are lots of different things we could say about that. I'll just make one suggestion. We steadfastly love and faithfully serve our Savior who gave himself for us through our involvement with our communities. And when we talk about communities here, we're not talking about our church community. Though it may be part of it. Your community is the place where God has put you. Where you live. Where you work. Where you study. Do we self-consciously pray and work towards having relationships in our communities where we can share God's grace? Do we get involved when opportunities arise for us to serve on things like, like public library boards or advisory committees? Or what about getting involved with politics? Why is it that a church this size doesn't have a single soul willing to let their name stand for public office in, in provincial or federal politics? Think about it. The Lord can and will use us in such things to be a positive influence in our society. Now, some might object to that. Some might say that this world is a sinking ship. And you know what they say about sinking ships. You don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Well, brothers and sisters, 
The Bible doesn't allow us to take that kind of a perspective. Christ's work and the, and the fundamentally positive perspective that comes from that doesn't allow us to take that kind of an attitude. Is the world a sinking ship? Well, we do know from, from Scripture passages like 2 Peter 3 that this world is destined for cleansing by fire. But that seems to be a reference to the, to the physical world. There are plenty of other scripture passages which motivate us to social and political and relational involvement in our communities. We have a calling. And we also know that God is gathering, defending, and preserving His church. And He does it through means. And we are His means. And we know that God's victory over Satan is there. The devil cannot and he will not prevail. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come. And we see it coming in larger and larger measures. God's Word never compels us to view the world as a lost cause, but rather as the realm in which God is more and more showing His grace and power in Christ as He gathers in the elect. And He does that through His people. And let Him also do it through us. And brothers and sisters, the doctrines of grace are about far more than just what what God does with our souls or or the spiritual aspect of our lives, as if we could somehow divorce that from our life. These are life-changing and society-impacting truths. The doctrines of grace produce a unique and powerful worldview, which when lived consistently has the potential to turn the world upside down for God. It's really a shame that we don't often reflect on these doctrines. But perhaps that's part of the reason why our impact is so limited. God is a God of grace and power. He is our God. And let's reflect on what He would do through us for His glory, both inside and outside the church. Let's reflect on that. And then also get into action. Relying on His grace and strength. What He provides for everything, every day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.